Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and find your way to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45, we're in the midst and kind of on the back half of our series through the life of Joseph in chapters 37 through 50, the purposes of God in the land of affliction. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to read that, and then, like we do every Sunday, we'll dive in. Genesis chapter 45. be helpful to remind ourselves of Judah's words, at least in the end, uh, the last couple of verses of chapter 44, where, where Judah says to Joseph, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Well, how is Joseph going to respond? Verse 1 of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Their houses must have been connected or close together. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, which this Goshen actually isn't found in any Egyptian records, but it's probably a, a Semitic name given for the region. But it's a, it's a nice region in Egypt, the northeast uh, portion. And he says, you'll dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and all your flocks, your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with them. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. 
And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for the goods, for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Your story written by the hand of God. Your life, your days, your encounters, your hurts, your pains, your sins, and sins done against you, penned by God in eternity past. Everything that happens, from the dust mite floating in the rays of the sun to the bug that is flying around our screens this morning to the most horrific of sins are all under God's control. That's where we get our word sovereignty. But more than that, he, God directs and governs all things, including the sinful actions of willing humans to accomplish his purposes. That's where we get our word providence. Yet, of course, God himself is not responsible for sin, nor is he to blame for sin. And I know that kind of takes a while, especially if this is new to you, to kind of sink in. But Lord willing, we'll have time to do that throughout our morning together. Because the question we're faced with today is this. We read here, it's obvious, he said, Joseph is clearly saying, you sinned against me, but God sinned me. You sinned, God sent. You sold, God sent. The question before us, then, is what should my response be to the fact that God has planned, is sovereign over, and governs and directs even sinful actions? And before we answer that, I want to at least try to identify maybe four, there might be more, uh, types of listeners who I'm sure make up our, our, our gathering this morning. In one camp, there are probably those of you in here, which this would probably be the camp I fall in. You've been around a fundamental church long enough to have heard this topic on the sovereignty and providence of God taught dozens, perhaps hundreds of times in one way or another. In another camp, there are those of you who, like Joseph, have been sinned against in horrific ways. And you are wrestling with God, trying to figure out how God could permit such an awful sin to be committed against you. 
Perhaps in another camp we find this morning those who, maybe you're hearing about this for the very first time, or maybe it's still pretty new to you. In another, many of you have faced what Pastor Matt talked about in his, during his uh, reading and during the prayer. And many of you are facing death within the family and you're grieving and facing loss. Many of you are looking at this world, the war in Ukraine, the school shooting in Uvalde, the crumbling economy, and you're trying to figure out and make sense of things. And so whether you find yourself in one of those camps or somewhere in between, or maybe you would say, well, actually, I'm in another camp. And you would explain your situation in a different way. Either way, all of us together, looking at God's word, is going to learn how to respond to the doctrine of God's providence over sin. What I will call his purposeful sovereignty over sin. And I'll use those two interchangeably. But in chapter 45, from the mouth of Joseph comes one of the most important passages helping us to see the sovereign rule of God over sinful actions. Yet I have to admit that so often... For someone who's grown up around this doctrine, went to school and was taught this doctrine, watches videos and reads books on this doctrine, so often this is a doctrine that we affirm with our mouths, yet we so, not as often, embrace in our hearts. This doctrine is often discussed in arrogance, in argumentativeness, a head knowledge that puffs up and is blind to the real issues of life. The author of the book, Providence, says this. The biblical authors do not bring up the issue of God's purposeful sovereignty over sin merely to validate a theological viewpoint, but rather to humble human pride, intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness, and put ballast in the battered boat of human faith, steel in the spine of human courage, and love in the human heart that sees no possible human way forward. He continues, what we find is real and raw. The prizing and proclamation of God's pervasive providence was forged in flames of hatred and love, deceit and truth, murder and mercy, carnage and kindness, cursing and blessing, mystery and revelation, and finally, crucifixion and resurrection. So the question, another question we have before us is do we prize and proclaim this doctrine? Because this doctrine is what Romans 8.28 is all about. You know the verse. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to, for those who are called according to his purpose. What a thought. What a thought. Being able to interpret the story of our lives, all that happens, the good, the bad, the justice, the injustice, the terror, and the safety, as all coming from the hand of our loving Father, who isn't maliciously poking fun at our lives, but is working all things towards the good and perfect purpose that he has for all those who love him. And if you'll allow me to be candid with you, the main issue I had in preparing this message wasn't with the doctrine of the providence of God itself, even the doctrine of God's providence over sin. My issue is that I knew I was going to stand up here this morning, and among those listening would be those who, like Joseph, have suffered through terrible experiences at the hands of lustful and hateful sinners. 
that there would be people facing real loss with real questions. And while I gladly share the beauty of this truth from God's word, I would never want to do so in a way that seems glib, a way in which you hear that, that, that what I'm saying is whatever you face is no big deal, just suck it up, move on, just forget about it. My concern is not with God's truth, but how we or I often handle it. That when it comes to the doctrine of the providence of God over sin, we often talk about it in such a way that removes the real and raw experiences of actual people actually sinned against and actually sinning. This doctrine has often been used to produce more arrogance and arguments among Christians than awe and amazement, joy and submission, comfort and faith. So this morning, I've kind of got my targets acquired here. For those who have heard this doctrine taught for years and years, we look together in God's word today, and I pray that the glory of this truth about God eliminates the arrogance, the argumentiveness, the apathy that is often the byproduct of mishandling this doctrine. For those of you who have been sinned against in horrific ways, We look together in God's word today and I pray that the glory of this truth about God puts ballast in the battered boat of your faith and love in your heart when you see no possible human way forward. For those of you who perhaps are hearing this for the very first time, we are looking together at God's word this morning and I pray that the glory of this truth about God would not stir up apprehension or disgust but instead tune your heart to embrace the wise, loving, sovereign God above all else. For those who are feeling empty of joy and have nothing but sorrow, we gather this morning and we look together at God's word and I pray that the glory of this truth will give comfort to you as it did to Joseph. So this morning, as any Sunday, my invitation to you is not to come and listen to a preacher preach about the providence of God over sin. My invitation to every one of you is to come and see Come and see God in God's word. God is purposely sovereign over sin. So come and see the God in whom this doctrine rests. And as we look at Genesis 45, I think there's way more than I'm missing here. But I think there are at least three things I believe God would invite you and I to see from this doctrine. So come and see, number one, the exaltation of God. The exaltation of God. Chapter 45 is really kind of the climax of the entire book, or or the entire portion of Joseph's life, 37 to 50. We've had some pretty intense moments throughout the narrative, but this is the ultimate. If you remember all the way back, Joseph is the favored son. He was hated by his brothers, and motivated by their lust for a few bucks, they sold him to Midianite slave traders. Screams of mercy, screams for mercy, went unheard as this 17-year-old boy was stripped from his family, all at the hands of his merciless brothers. Sold to an Egyptian officer named Potiphar, you know the story, Joseph served with God's blessing of prosperity as head of Potiphar's household. Wrongfully accused by Potiphar's wife, where does he end up next? But in prison. And what follows is more than a year, perhaps years, of continued prosperity in prison. God giving, in the eyes of the head jailer, favor towards Joseph. Released from prison, Joseph is promoted to second ruler of all Egypt. 
This after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of severe famine over the whole land. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 41, the seven years of plenty have passed and the years of famine are here. And it's been a total of 20 years since Joseph was sold as a slave and, and, and who stands in front of him in need of food but those 10 malicious brothers who sold him those 20 years ago. Joseph, unrecognized by his brothers, puts their, if you remember, their, their self-proclaimed integrity to the test. And it culminates, these tests culminates with, with Joseph putting the very life of Benjamin, the new favorite son, on the line. And that's chapter 44. This time, however, there would be no gleeful abandonment by the ten older brothers. Judah, the mastermind behind Joseph's demise, would offer to lay down his very life for Benjamin to go free. These men have indeed been changed. And so we get to the end of chapter 4. The question is, well, what next? What's, what's going to happen next? Where, where does this go? And so when we come to chapter 45, this is where the whole story of Joseph and the grand story of God's redemption begins to make sense. Chapter 45 happens the day after the great dinner party of chapter 43. Remember that? When they, when they came back and bring Benjamin, he throws this big party. So again, we're, we're not, it's not like we're weeks later. We're, we're the day after chapter 43 dinner party. And after hearing the words of Judah, Joseph can no longer hold back his emotions. He calls for everyone to leave his presence except his brothers so that this uncontrollable sobbing wouldn't become a public spectacle. And Joseph is no longer going to conceal his emotions before his brothers. And so he speaks to them. And in their amazement, he starts speaking to them in the Hebrew language. But even more shocking than this Egyptian who is now speaking the Hebrew language were the words he said next. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? He wanted full assurance that his father was still alive. His brothers, of course, as we read, they're, they're in so much shock, they can't even answer him. And it's the words of Joseph that follow that help us see the God who is sovereignly pur- purposeful over sin. And the first thing we see when we look at this is the exaltation of God. Notice how many times he says God in this, in just a few verses, where he tells his brothers to come near. And they came there, and he says, God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Keep alive many survivors. It wasn't you who sent me here, but God. God has made me father to Pharaoh. Kind of this idea of a, like a, a royal advisor. Lord over all of his house, ruler over the land. And then notice what he says when he says, Go tell my father and say to him, Here's what your son Joseph says, God, God has made me ruler over Egypt. Joseph talked a lot more about God than he talked about Joseph. This doctrine of God's providence, his purposeful sovereignty, his purposeful providence over sin, exalts God. Uh, look at Isaiah 44, 7 through 8. It'll be on the screen. Where God says this to people Israel. He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed, here's his sovereignty, an ancient people. Let them, whoever, whoever's like me or whoever's greater than me, let this person declare what's to come and what will happen. There's God's purposeful sovereignty. He says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I told you from of old and declared it 
and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. And God says, I know not any. This doctrine, prized and proclaimed, exalts God. Yet in a world consumed by being attractive and we ourselves bent towards self-exaltation, we can be sure that there's nothing attractive by this world's standards about exalting God. We are often attracted to the self-made man or the self-made woman. That's who we want to be. I think we have to confess that many times in our sinful nature, we would rather just leave God out completely. We like to tell stories. We like to put pictures of our lives out there for all to see that, that leave God out. Where the object and the subject of the story is us. We long for people to come and ask us how we did it. Hey, how'd you do it? And we like to say, well, I, you know, here's how I did it. Here's all about me. And it's like we would hear and we would affirm Isaiah 44, wouldn't we? When, when God says, is there a God besides me? And which God answers, and he says, there is no rock, I know not of any. And we would say, yeah, that's true. But it's as if we live practically, and how we live practically often says otherwise. It's like how we live, it's like, well, God kind of forgot to mention somebody in that verse. When he says, is there a God besides me, he forgot to include me in there. He may be a rock, but I'm pretty solid myself. I can tell you how I've made it through these things on my own. I could tell you all about me and how I've accomplished this or that. Our problem today is that the rock, little r, we see play in movies and bounce around a wrestling ring, gets more awe and wonder than the rock, our God, who alone is sovereignly working his purposes among the children of man. And if you notice, as Joseph is going through this, it's almost as if Joseph is saying to his brothers, Come and rejoice with me over what our great God has done. Notice even uh, verse 8, where he says, It was not you who sent me here, but God. It's like Joseph is being very emphatic here. It wasn't you. It's as if he's saying to his brothers that their sin doesn't get the privilege of being exalted above the God who is purposely sovereign over sin. Seeing and embracing this truth about God is meant to produce in us thoughts about God that are greater than our suffering. This won't eliminate the hurt, and it doesn't excuse anyone's sin. The brothers really sinned and really needed to repent. But this doctrine, rightly embraced, should and does humble human pride, intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness, and put ballast in the battered boat of human faith, steel in the spine of human courage, and love in the heart that sees no possible human way forward. It's meant to exalt God. I was reading just the other day from Psalm 66, uh, verses 3 and 4, where I was struck by these words. It says, say to God. So here's the Bible telling us what we should say to God. And here's what it says. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Say that to God. Say Psalm 66 verses 3 and 4 to God. Because I think that provides the basis for what's next. God is purposely sovereign over sin. 
So come and see the God in whom this doctrine rests. We are looking at things that God invites us to see from this doctrine. First, we see the exaltation of God. Second, we see the motivation for forgiveness. The motivation for forgiveness. We have all been sinned against. We have all sinned against others. And undoubtedly, some of you have been sinned against in the most horrific of ways and have had the deep emotional pain and hurt while trying to figure out how life could possibly work moving forward. And so the question I think we're left with today is, especially as this topic comes up so clearly in this passage, is does Christianity, the gospel, and God's word offer any hope to those who have been sinned against? Even in the most highness of ways. And I believe Genesis 45 is one of the most faith-provoking passages on the providence of God over sin. I believe that rightly embraced, this doctrine leads to forgiveness, even if it's a journey to get there. Because there's little doubt in my mind that it was a journey for Joseph. I think Joseph perceived bit by bit the hand of God in this nightmare. Joseph, the 17-year-old, didn't see himself as a lifesaver, that he's seeing himself now. Instead, as a 17-year-old, he saw himself as the victim, which he was, of the barbaric actions of sinful men. Yet God was engraving on Joseph's heart, line by line, bit by bit, that the embracing of God's providence over sin led him to the prizing and proclamation of it. It led him not only to exalt God, but to forgive his brothers. Now, I'm not going to pretend to suggest that this passage alone offers all the wisdom we need to work through the complex issues of being sinned against. And I certainly don't suggest that forgiveness means you forget, or that forgiving means you no longer hurt. But here's where I pray it starts. For those of you who have been sinned against, no matter where you're at in the spectrum, here's why I pray it starts for you. That God would indeed, as we've said time and time again, would put ballast in the battered boat of your faith and love in your heart when you see no possible human way forward. That you would see this doctrine of God's purposeful sovereignty over sin and see that his grace, as seen in his providence, is what we need to face our disgrace. You know, Joseph, this, think about all, all that this sin told Joseph. This sin done through his brothers told Joseph that he was worthless, he was unwanted, that he belonged in a pit, And he was only worth a few shekels, good for nothing but to be sold as a slave. And this is one of the things, as when sins are done against us, when trials pile on, when the waves of suffering continue to crash into us, wave after wave after wave, Satan takes those opportunities to begin to whisper in our ear. And he tries to convince us that God can't be trusted. What sort of God would allow you to face such suffering. That's what he did to Job. He tries to convince us that it's time to leave God behind and find our own way. Put up the barriers, put up the walls, cut God off, and move on. Now, Joseph called their sin, sin. He said, 
I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. That's sin. Yet Joseph found in that sin the sovereign purposes of God. His faith was sustained. His love was warmed. Notice what Joseph is saying in this. Time and time again, you sold me into Egypt. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me here. Or you sold me here for God sent me before you. Again, verse 8, you did not send me here. God did. He's saying that behind the sin of the past and beyond it in the future wasn't a nebulous it. He wasn't saying, hey, you're lucky it all worked out. That's just like there's some nebulous, vague sort of power behind this all. Where we say to one another, I'm just, well, I'm just glad it worked out. Well, it, I, you know, I'm, I'm still bitter to the core, but it worked out. He's not saying it all worked out. He sees God. At the same moment of evil, there was a good God working things out for the good of Joseph and others. He even tells his brothers, don't be angry and distressed with yourselves. Verse 5, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. But isn't this kind of our problem with people who sin against us? Even, I mean, and our pettiness with people even that annoy us? We look at them and we want to see them wallowing in anger and self-pity and distress towards themselves. We want to see their regret. We want to see their pain. We want them burning in their own man-made hell of misery and regret and distress and anger. Yet Joseph was able to say, a victim of human trafficking was able to say, it wasn't you, even though you sinned. There was a God, a good, wise, loving God who was there at the moment you were. And his purposes are better than your sins. In Christ, no sin committed against you, against us, can capture from Christ the identity of our souls. Listen to the comforting words of God to his people Israel through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of, not me, our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Robert Kellerman comments on this passage in his book on abuse, and he says this, Never forget who you are in Christ. You are the king's daughter or son, 
You are God's workmanship. His epic poem, his opus, his masterpiece. All the evil you have ever suffered, God in Christ has been weaving together for good, for beauty, for splendor. Continue to live your life based upon your belief in God's mission statement. God is indispensable. He continues, continue to journey down life's path with God's prescription for our disgrace. Grace. Joseph found in God, the God who is sovereign over sin, the ballast he needed for the battered boat of his faith. He found in God, the God who is sovereign over sin, love when his human heart saw no way forward. And we're not even going to touch on it this morning, but evidence is seen, if nowhere else, in the great generosity towards his brothers. This is one of the most fascinating parts of chapter 45. In verses 14 and 15, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin upon his. And then verse 15, and he kissed all of his brothers, and he wept upon them. Then they hung out and chatted. They caught up with they caught up on what's going on in life. They shot the breeze. And of course, as we read, prior to these verses and after, we see Joseph provide richly for them. The one who stripped Joseph of his clothes are being clothed by Joseph in verse 22. Pharaoh uh, gets in on the action of kind of a, as a great affirmation of Joseph's decision, provides wagons, it was basically like a private jet for them, for their kids and for their wives and for Jacob. God's prescription for our disgrace is his grace. Rightly embraced, this doctrine leads to something far greater than simply forgetting someone's sin, but forgiving. And the final thing we see, at least we'll look at this morning, is the crown jewel. Number three, we see the redemption of God. This goes back to verse 7, because uh, there's a very interesting word that Joseph uses here. It says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. That's a very interesting word, because we, we, we're used to hearing that word, but not until like way later in the prophets, where the people of Israel have been punished, and the prophets talk about preserving a remnant for the promises of God. But here it happens in verse 7 of chapter 45 of Genesis. And so it's as if Joseph, maybe even speaking better than he knows, realizes that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. Remember the promise to make him a great nation and be the, that Abraham was going to be a source of blessing for all people. The promise made to Joseph's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather survives. The plan of redemption survives. And Joseph sees this, at least in part. God has planned and directed the sinful actions of willing humans time and time again to accomplish his plan of redemption. The examples in scripture are many. I think Job is maybe another obvious one. But the examples in scripture, in all this, in Genesis 45, it's easy to look at the fact that God is sovereignly purposeful over sin and think, God planned and permitted that sin when he could have stopped it. And you, you can, it's easy to say, well, this part of what the Bible teaches about God is the worst thing about God I could ever imagine. 
but I'm going to show you right now, you won't have to wait, that in fact, the, God, the, the fact that God is purposely sovereign over sin, that even sin falls under the providence of God is actually the greatest news. Because here's the ultimate act of God's providence, his purposeful sovereignty over sin. Acts chapter 2, men of Israel, people of Calvary Baptist Church, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested by everybody in God's word, in person for these men, to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, notice this, was delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It doesn't just stop there. It goes on. You crucified and killed him. You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of these lawless men. He didn't stay dead. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. But according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, definite plan, anything that happens in your life, everything that happens in your life is part of God's definite plan. So these all throughout scripture, these moments of God using sin and even, and even uh, planning and permitting sin, it's not just to give us little snapshots of, snapshots of how God works some of the time. It's to give us a snapshot of our good and loving and wise Father, culminating in this ultimate picture that this is the greatest news we have because God planned for there to be a Savior. God planned for there to be hope beyond the sin that was committed against us. And so when the sins of others are aimed at us and we become the objects of horrific sins or we face horrific suffering or we face things that just don't make sense, like a school shooting, we must remember the sins committed against Jesus the worst of sins committed against the sinless Jesus, all planned by God, planned and carried out by God through the hands of lawless men so that in Jesus, all the evil we have ever suffered leaves us with a very great and precious promise that God in Christ has been weaving all things together for our good, for beauty, and for splendor. And if you have Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior, How could you walk away from this doctrine with arrogance, argumentativeness, or apathy? And if you have Christ, and you have suffered, or are suffering, God offers in this doctrine the ballast needed for the battered boat of your faith, and love where your human heart sees no way forward. If you're hearing this, Again, for the very first time, then God offers in this doctrine the tuning of your heart to embrace the sweet song of a wise, loving, sovereign God above all else. And if you don't have Christ, and you're not a Christian, and perhaps this doctrine is utterly repulsive to you, God offers in this doctrine his son, Jesus Christ, The one who, according to God's definite plan, was delivered up to die, was buried, and three days later rose again. He offers that to you, to believe in him. Your sins will be forgiven. 
We can all sing what a wonderful reigning Savior we serve. So come and see. Come and see the God on whom this doctrine rests. Let's pray. Our Father God, nothing heavier than taking a doctrine we'll never understand completely in this life. It'll probably take us a while and eternity learning it. Combining it with the raw and real experiences that we are all facing even right now. And then asking you to help us see you. We want to see you. We want to exalt you. We want to find in this doctrine that great proclamation of Psalm 66, how awesome are your deeds. We want to find in this doctrine the ballast for our battered boat of faith. We want to find in this doctrine love that will warm our hearts when we see no possible human way forward. We want to find in this doctrine redemption, that in this doctrine you offer us your son to see him and to glorify him, to believe on him and be saved. So God is as tangled as this stuff often is. We pray, if anything, we will see you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have the deacons and uh, everyone who's helping serve uh, the Lord's Supper come forward as we prepare to pass the elements and just a couple words before we pray and, and pass the elements. If this is, this is uh, the Lord's Supper, this is something Jesus told his disciples. He said, this do in remembrance of me. And so if you're a, a follower of Jesus, this is, this is our time to kind of get together as a family and, and remember our Lord Jesus. If you're a Christian today, we invite you to partake. If you're not a Christian, we just ask that you simply let these go by. God offers a pretty stern warning that Anyone who takes this unworthily and isn't really a Christian but has just kind of taken it just to do the religious thing is actually uh, under pretty severe condemnation from God, not just because of this, but because of your sins. And so we just ask that you let these elements pass. They're not going to save you. They're not going to give you any sort of affirmation or acceptance before God. Perhaps the better way to do things would be for you to believe in Jesus and be saved. And so... The bread and the juice representing the perfect life and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. And uh, Paul says uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, when he, before you do this, everybody, uh, you, you're supposed to look at yourself and you're supposed, to, you're supposed to examine yourself. Confess any known sins. Embrace fully the redemption found in Jesus and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So let's, uh, as these are passed out, you just take a moment privately to, uh, to do that, and, uh, and then we'll take the elements together uh, here in just a minute. So let's pray, and then we'll pass. Father, we thank you for the perfect life of Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice, the, the lamb without spot or blemish, yet it wasn't just a lamb walking around without spot or blemish, it was a lamb sacrificed, a lamb that was slain so that forgiveness of sins could be made possible, because without the shedding of blood, without death, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Lord, this table causes us to look forward to the day, because you rose from the dead, you're in heaven, and you're coming back, and you're going to gather us all, all Christians, around a table to celebrate your feast at the, at the marriage supper. And so Lord, we look forward to that day as well, and uh, we just pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.